Welcome back. This is part two of a two-part series on ARDS. Last week, I talked with Christian Guzman, my critical care nurse practitioner friend, about an interesting case of a patient who developed ARDS from a gastropleural fistula, which was discovered when the chest tube was placed and bile came out. I know, crazy. So Christian does a good job breaking down the pathophys of acute respiratory distress syndrome. So if you haven't listened to that already, just go ahead and pause this now and go back and listen to episode 53 first. But if you're able to track with Christian for part one, then stay tuned because in this episode, Christian gets to talk about a topic that gets him really jazzed, proning and ECMO. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. So Christian, we've talked a lot about ventilator management for ARDS, that it's different than regular patients who are on the vent, but are there any like medications or other interventions we can do to help rest the lung and to help promote oxygenation and ventilation without it being too much for the patient? Like what are some things we can do to help support that resting of the inflamed lung tissue? It gets to a point, right, where you're on the ventilator, you've maxed out all of your therapies that you can do on the ventilator. So then the question is, where do you go next? Because man, like this patient, we're going to lose them, right? People die from ARDS. This is a, a very serious illness. So I always preface this with, I in general do not like deep sedation. I go on the record. I have talked at NTI about it. <laughs> I've talked to many hospitals about it. I dislike with a passion deep sedation. However, and the reason why is because it could lead to weakness and cognitive uh, deficits later on after their ICU admission or even delirium during their ICU admission. But here's the thing is that you're not going to have to worry about delirium if the patient hasn't survived. So you have to do everything that you can, right? So what happens? Deep sedation relaxes the patient and prevents them from getting agitated, obviously, right? And why does that matter? When you're agitated, that actually increases your oxygen consumption. And when you increase your oxygen consumption, you're taking what little you already have in your blood and using it unnecessarily. So I don't know if any of your listeners have been an ICU patient. I've been an ICU patient. It is annoying to have an NG tube. It is annoying to have a surgical scar. It is annoying to have a Foley, have an arterial line, have a central line, let alone be on a ventilator. So patients, especially patients that can't breathe while being on the ventilator, are going to be exceptionally agitated. So the goal is always to keep a RAS of like zero, meaning they're awake, alert, and calm. You don't want them necessarily awake in severe ARDS where you're struggling with oxygenation. And the reason being, you are 
unnecessarily increasing oxygen consumption. So you have to preserve the oxygen that you already have. So deep sedation is one strategy to use. Now, let's say you have them deeply sedated and it's not working still. Okay, still having a hard time here. What are we doing? So the other thing that we could do is actually paralyze the muscle. So giving a paralytic actually goes and takes out of the picture the function of skeletal muscle. So it doesn't affect cardiac muscle. It does not affect smooth muscle. So like in your bowel, in your around your arterioles and arteries and veins, in your heart, those things it doesn't affect those muscles. It affects purely skeletal muscle, which is found in your accessory muscles, and it's found in your diaphragm. So the idea is that by going and relaxing the muscles, you're actually going to improve compliance because you're essentially relaxing the muscles in between your ribs, the intercostal muscles, and you're going and relaxing your sonocleidomastoids, and you're allowing the ventilator to go and inflate the lung without any external influence or counteraction. So that's one thing you're doing. The other thing that you're doing is you are preventing even then like just coughing, that'll make you desaturate, that will increase your oxygen consumption. So giving a paralytic is beneficial in terms of oxygenation. So the question is, do paralytics make a difference? Now there was a trial, I think it was the accuracy trial, that I, I could have gotten the name wrong, uh, but I that's what it's called, that actually tested early paralysis with cystatricurium. And there was a significant mortality benefit. Uh, with early paralysis. So people were paralyzing patients left and right on ARDS. Now, I take that study with a grain of salt. The reason I take that study with a grain of salt is because there was a lung safe trial, there was the lung safe study that actually assessed how compliant are people with lung protective ventilation. They're not compliant with lung protective ventilation. So the lung safe trial actually looked at different ICUs and their ventilation strategies. And there is a significant portion of people that are still not utilizing lung protective ventilation. Why do I bring that up? Because in 2019, let's see, I think it was 2019. Yeah, it's 2019. The ROSE trial came out. And this was crazy because the ROSE trial checked like with early paralysis versus no paralysis or late paralysis and showed paralysis didn't make a difference with ARDS mortality. And one of the reasons that people will go and say, if you like, you know, discuss with like other people who are published and in the academic community, it's like, well, you know, we've gotten better about mechanically ventilating patients with ARDS. So maybe that's why there's not a difference. Maybe before we were aggressively ventilating them too much. And by going in, having better numbers with paralysis early in the first trial with cystatricurium, ventilation. We were able to use more protective ventilation versus now. So I don't know. It's very controversial. Paralysis early is very controversial. In my practice personally, I don't like to use paralysis all willy-nilly because it actually can lead to critical illness myopathy and things further down the road that I see in my post-ICU practice and at these rehabs that I go on around at. So paralysis is definitely not the end-all be-all and it definitely has their steroids. So corticosteroids are also controversial. So the Maduri protocol came out a while ago, and the Maduri protocol essentially gave you pulse-dose steroids with methylprednisolone or solumedrol. So specifically solumedrol because it actually has better penetrations in the lung. And if you look at like the studies that showed high-dose steroids in ARDS, it was kind of mixed. And then I think the final analysis was, ah, it doesn't really make a difference in mortality. So physiologically speaking, there is a corticosteroid 
insufficiency aspect to ARDS. That does happen. When you are critically ill, your cortisol is deficient, period, end of story. That's why we use steroids and sepsis and critical illness and inflammation. There is a dysregulation of cortisol and its activity. We get into that on a whole other podcast, but there is a physiological rationale behind it. So more recently, a couple years ago, there was a trial that actually tried dexamethasone or decadron, and it actually had improved mortality outcomes. So steroids are making a comeback. All that to be said that it's steroids too are controversial in terms of the mortality in ARDS, but they can be used. And I will say I, now, especially after becoming more familiar with it through COVID, you know, and I don't want to confuse people because COVID ARDS is a telling animal, but after becoming more familiar with steroids and corticosteroids, I feel more comfortable and I use Decadron for ARDS now, and there is newer evidence for it. So we have deep sedation, paralysis, steroids, then inhaled vasodilators. So going back to the original pathology of ARDS, right? Your alveoli are crumbled. They're collapsed. They're not expanding. So you have blood that goes from the venous side into the right side of your heart, through the pulmonary artery, into the pulmonary vasculature, back getting oxygenated, back to the left side of the heart, and then it goes out to the body. So if at the lungs, all of those capillary beds are completely collapsed, they're collapsing the capillary beds around the alveola, and it increases pulmonary vascular resistance, okay? So you have an aspect of pulmonary hypertension or increased blood pressure in your pulmonary arteries that causes some degree of like right ventricular dysfunction. So you're hypoxic and that shunting can also go to the inflated alveoli. So the idea is if you give them a vasodilator directly into the alveoli, you're going to have local effects that'll actually increase blood flow to those inhaled alveoli, right? To those filled up open out alveoli and you're going to have better gas exchange because you're going to have more blood flow. Does that make sense? So how do we do that? We have nitric oxide and we have Flowland. So those are two medications through different mechanisms that essentially cause pulmonary vasodilation. It's real neat. So Flowland is a, you can give it IV in severe, I've only seen it in severe, severe pulmonary hypertension patients. The problem is that it actually causes profound hypotension. So why would you give that in the lungs if you have somebody who's like already so sick? Well, Flowland gets hydrolyzed in the bloodstream very rapidly. Like the half-life is like a minute or two, okay? So it's a relatively safe medication and so is nitric oxide. The question is, again, does it make a difference? So why are we even doing it? And I, I get that argument. I just will respectfully disagree with that. And if it makes my numbers pretty then it makes my numbers pretty. But in terms of the research, that's all that it does for ARDS is nitric oxide and flow and it'll go make your PaO2 better, make your CO2 better, and it'll allow you more wiggle. So those are medications that you could use. There is also IL-6 inhibitors that you could use to reduce it. The problem is that that'll completely shut down your immune system. So it depends on what's causing your ARDS. A lot of times it's sepsis, so that's why they don't use it. So those are the medications. Then comes prone position therapy. So before, in the 90s, maybe even early 2000s, 
Prone position therapy was used as a rescue maneuver. So why does prone position therapy actually work or make a difference? So if you go and I put you flat on your back, you are having your abdominal tissue and organs press against your diaphragm. You're having any chest or breast tissue push against your chest wall. Your lungs are having to overcome that resistance. Also, the biggest surface area of your lungs is the dorsal portion of your lungs. So if you are laying flat, you will have more atelectasis. The idea is if you flip someone upside down, you're actually creating less resistance to the biggest surface area of your lung. And it'll actually go and help recruit and it'll help you oxygenate. So people use prone position therapy as a rescue maneuver and they said, ah, it doesn't work. And that's the same logic that, you know, of leave a fed, leave them dead. For those of us who have been nurses for more than a couple of years, that was the drug, leave a fed, leave them dead. You know, that came from the fact that people use leave a fed as a last line presser. And then they started using it earlier on and then they found, wow, leave a fed's great for sepsis. So that's essentially what happened. So the Perceva trial in 2013 by Mancebo et al. And I believe Italy studied early prone position therapy for at least 12 hours a day. And it led to a significant reduction in mortality. So why do I say that? Out of all of the pulmonary vasodilators, out of the steroids, out of the paralysis, all that sort of stuff, prone position therapy is superior to that. So you should be proning your patients early. Your patients should be proned within 48 hours of a PDF ratio less than 150. Once you find that your PDF ratio hits 150, the clock has started. You don't have an excuse. You need to prone that patient. You can go and optimize ventilator management and do all those sorts of things. And of course, you have to weigh out the danger because the danger is that the ET tube can come out. So in patients like burn patients, that's dangerous, right? Because you have, if you have someone's face who's completely burned, you're not getting that tube back in. So do they have a tracheostomy? Do they have a secure airway? If that thing comes out, then you're really up a creek and it's difficult. So you have to weigh those. Obviously, if you have an open chest or even an open abdomen, there are contraindications of proposition therapy. But in a medical ICU or in an ICU where your patient has a closed chest, a closed abdomen and a normal brain, there's no reason to not prone somebody. I would say at this point, standard of care. Let me interject real quick. For those that don't work in the ICU, the idea of proning someone is like a huge deal. It's not like your patient who's ambulatory say, hey, can you just lay on your belly for a little bit? Like proning an intubated patient with a bunch of vasopressors and drains coming out of them, it is a huge deal. You put it on your schedule for the day. We're proning at 12 o'clock because <laughs> it's like you have to gather a lot of resources. I would say four, five, maybe six people have to work together to safely turn this patient on their belly. So you're having to do interdisciplinary collaboration with respiratory therapy, maybe even physical therapy. It's a lot of work to prone someone, but we are willing to do a lot of work. If we know the research shows it's best for the patient and clearly the research supports prone therapy, we've seen it over and over again with COVID. So just wanted to interject there. If you haven't seen a prone patient before in the ICU, it's a sight to see. It's a big deal to get someone on their belly. And during COVID, how many did we, did we prone? <laughs> Flashbacks. So the other thing that I wanted to mention is fluid management. So in a retrospective subgroup analysis of the uh, Arsenide trial and other, and other trials, Shovel, what about fluid status? Does fluid status matter? 
So you will hear surgeons, old surgeons, God, I hold old surgeons and not newer surgeons coming out of training and intensives coming out of training say, you have to swell to get well, okay? Fluid overload is a terrible condition. When you have fluid overload, number one, you decrease perfusion pressure because uh, perfusion pressure to any organ is your mean arterial pressure subtracted by your central venous pressure. And if your central venous pressure is out of whack, is super high, you're going to have decreased perfusion to your organs, number one. Number two, you'll have increased amount of bowel necrosis and ileus. Number three, you release, whenever you are fluid overloaded, you release atrial natriuretic peptide, which has been shown to degrade a layer within your artery called the endothelial glycocalyx, which is what protects and maintains your capillary permeability. So the more fluid overloaded you are, the more atrial natriuretic peptide you release, the more you degrade your endothelial glycocalyx, the more inflammation you have. With ARDS, it's more harmful because you already have increased pulmonary artery pressures. Why? Because you're hypoxic, you're derecruited, meaning your alveoli are collapsed. So your pulmonary artery pressures are extremely high. Your normal systemic blood pressure is 120 over 80. So your left ventricle is able to pump against 120 over 80, no problem. Your right ventricle is structured differently. Your right ventricle is so much more delicate to marked and acute increases in pulmonary artery pressures. So fluid overload can lead to acute right ventricular failure. And you'll also have increased hydrostatic pressure in your pulmonary vasculature, meaning increased pressure that drives fluid out of your vasculature into the interstitium. And you're already inflamed. You have third spacing happening at the alveolar level. So you have protein leakage at the alveolar level, okay? So your protein leakage at the alveolar level is going to draw all that fluid into the interstitium around the alveoli that's already edematous. So you are going to worsen your ARDS with fluid overload. So a conservative fluid management strategy is also proven to be better, not only for ARDS, for everything. Now, the other extreme is bad too, right? Because if you are hypovolemic, then you don't have enough stroke volume to go and have end organ perfusion. So if you don't have that, right, you're going to have malperfusion of your organs. You'll go into renal failure. You'll get bowel ischemia, X, Y, and Z. So Aside from the ventilator, we have paralysis and sedation, which helps your numbers. Not real super strong that it makes a difference in outcomes in terms of paralysis. Inhaled vasodilators, not real good uh, strong evidence that it helps with outcomes. Proposition therapy that has been proven to improve mortality in the ARDS. And fluid conservative management, which has been shown to decrease mortality in ARDS. How about your patient, Christian? I'm assuming you did all these things. What was the course of his therapy? Yeah. What ended up happening with him? What, like, as far as like, what was the next steps as you intubated him and got all these interventions going? So this guy, by the time he came to us, he was on paralysis. He was already in um, renal failure because he just had so much inflammation that he had ATN. He had been diuresed. He was on pressors. He was prone. He had all the things done, but he gets to us and his ARDS on 100% FiO2 
max ventilator settings, paralyzing everything while prone, his PaO2 is still in the 50s. Flowland and nitric, so both pulmonary vasodilators, he is dying. He is actively dying. And we are, we're at the point where we are, we're desperate. So we elected to cannulate him for ECMO. <laughs> ECMO could be a two-hour podcast in and of itself. <laughs> ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So what does that mean? That means that I get your blood, put it in a machine. The machine gets rid of your carbon dioxide, adds oxygen to it, and then I put that blood from the machine back into the patient. So that is all ECMO cannulations and formulations do that, okay? The nuances come on where you take blood from and where you put blood back into. That's where the nuances come. For ARDS, we're going to stick to venovenous echnocannulation. So I'm going to take blood from your vein. I'm going to put it to this machine. We're going to oxygenate it. We're going to get rid of carbon dioxide. And we are going to put it back into the patient's body. So why would we do it that way? Well, the venous blood is going to go through the lungs, but the lungs aren't working. The lungs aren't doing anything. So if you go and put it through the right, if you put that, ox that deoxygenated blood through the lungs, you're going to be hypoxic like this gentleman. But if you go and put oxygenated blood through there, it doesn't matter what the lungs do. Whatever little lung tissue there is, what are they going to do? Take out more carbon dioxide and add more oxygen? It's not hard. Like that native lung function, it's not like it's too much lung function, Right. So basically, because we're just going to take the lungs out of the picture and we're going to put the blood in through the right heart and then the right heart's going to take it to the left heart and then out through the body. One thing that you need for venovenous ECMO is a working heart. Why do I say that? If your heart's not beating, if it's not pumping, if it's not having that flow from right to left adequately, it doesn't matter how much oxygen you're giving the venous side, the arterial side isn't getting anything. That's when you get into VA ECMO and all those nuances. But basically, we put him on VV ECMO. And the purpose behind VV ECMO is to completely take the lungs out of the picture and do the oxygenation and ventilate for him. So when someone's on ECMO, we're basically giving their lungs the best rest it could get because it hasn't, it's not doing anything to contribute at this point. But at what point do we say, okay, the lungs are getting better, it's time to take some support away from the ECMO and let the lungs try to do its job. How do you know when it's time to do that? And how do you move towards decannulation or taking off the ECMO support? To that point, ECMO is not great for the body. It leads to a whole different sequelae. So you want to get them off ECMO as much as you can, but you want to maximize that therapy if they're tolerating it. So they're doing okay on it. They're not having any complications like bleeding, stroke, X, Y, and Z. You want to make sure that you baby the lung so you put the lung on what's called rest ventilation. Rest ventilation could mean different things to different people. At the facility that I've mostly worked at in my career, we used a mode of ventilation, pressure control, driving pressure of 10, a rate of 10, 40% FiO2, and a peep of 10. So 10, 10 over 10, 40%. What'll happen is as the lung heals, the lung is going to start inflating more. Okay. And it's going to start opening up more. And what happens is as the lung is opening up more, you're going to be oxygenating better and you're going to be 
ventilating better. So your carbon dioxide and oxygenation levels are going to be better in the bloodstream. So then you could the ECMO. So the question is, how do you wean the ECMO? So you got to understand the nuance of like how the, a pump actually works. So you have the blood going in through a membrane. The membrane is permeable to oxygen and carbon dioxide. And outside of that blood tubing, there's another chamber where something called sweep gas is inserted, okay? So sweep gas is something that we put in that membrane that has very low carbon dioxide and high oxygen. How high oxygen does that have? You could have it 100% oxygen or you could have it at 0% oxygen. It depends on what you put, what percent, because you could adjust the FiO2 in that sweep gas, in, in the membrane. Because there is low carbon dioxide in the sweep gas, carbon dioxide is going to go from the blood where it's high into that chamber. And then the oxygen that's high in that chamber with the sweep gas is going to go into the blood where it's low. So that's where you have gas exchange. Remember, gases go from high to low concentration, right? So you're getting rid of the carbon dioxide and getting oxygen diffusing into the blood. So the idea would be that your sweep gas, your sweep gas could go to 15 liters a minute. The higher flow that you have in the sweep gas, the more that the machine is taking away the carbon dioxide. I guess the simplest way to put it is there has to be a difference between that chamber and the blood. So the higher the sweep gas, the more difference is going to create. And the more that the difference creates, the more gas exchange occurs. So ideally what will happen is as your lungs start to inhale and exhale and participate more in respiration, you're actually going to start to be able to go down on that flow and start doing less with the machine. So once you start, as the lungs heal, they open up, your tidal volumes get better, your x-ray looks better, and you're having less and less support on the machine, then we can say, all right, let's trial him off the sweep gas. So a sweep of zero to where it provides zero support and see how he does with only his lungs. And if they do well with that, meaning you're able to get them to an ABG that is manageable with a ventilator, right? Because that's the key. Once you take that off, the ventilator is all you have, unless you're going to put them back on ECMO, which has its own things. So if you could manage the hypoxia and the hypercapnia with the ventilator, you're good to go, man. You can decannulate the patient. The other question is, does this really work? Does it make a difference? You know, there's a groundbreaking trial by Dr. Peek et al. out of UK called the Caesar trial that showed a mortality benefit. Then there was a more recent trial called the Eolia trial. So the Caesar trial came out. Everybody's like, yeah, 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 ECMO, awesome. Anyway, so everybody was gung-ho about ECMO. And then the Eolia trial came out and everybody just paused because the Eolia trial, you read the paper, and this is why you should always, if you're going to cite a paper, read the study, read the patients, read the crossover, read all that sort of stuff and actually analyze it. Because if you look at the trial, the conclusion was ECMO makes no difference in mortality. But there was a lot of crossover from the patients in the non-ECMO group to the ECMO group, meaning they had no other option. So they ended up getting ECMO because they were going to die without it. So that was part of the study. The argument that you can make is that because you used ECMO as a rescue maneuver in those patients and not early, which is the whole point of ECMO, then 
you're not really going to improve mortality. So this is that if you take those patients out of the trial, would show a benefit. So that's the counter argument. So ECMO in terms of outcomes remains controversial, but I promise you, you're going to see more and more ECMO throughout the future. And now we're getting to the places where it's not just heart surgeons that are cannulating. There are plenty of facilities that I know, and I've met intensivists that cannulate. Uh, one of uh, a nurse practitioner buddy of mine, he cannulates um, with his in- intensivist. He goes and puts in the ECMO cannulas. So this is something just the same way that we put central lines in. I wouldn't be surprised if intensivists and nurse pra- uh, critical care nurse practitioners start putting ECMO cannulas in. So that's my spiel on ECMO. So, And even with the rise of eCPR, there's ER doctors as well that are trained to cannulate and they'll cannulate while active CPR is going on. So oh, yeah. definitely there's a lot in the future. Christian, to wrap this whole thing up, yeah. what would you say is the primary thing you would want a nurse to know as far as identifying ARDS? And then what are the primary takeaways you'd want them to have for treating ARDS? For recognizing ARDS, if someone is hypoxic and you see that they're having low sats and you're getting an ABG, as the nurse, it is totally within your knowledge set and within your scope and within your intelligence to say, hey, this patient's P to F ratio is X, Y, and Z. So if you're a PCU nurse, if you're a nurse in the ER, and you see that your patient's on BiPAP 100%, it's PAO260, you'd be like, hey, like this guy's PF, PDF ratio is 60. What are we doing here? So knowing those things and kind of like going above and beyond can really save someone's life because going back, right, to the beginning of where I said, yes, yeah, PAO2 is 80, 100% FIO2, right? There are people who are tempted to say, oh, no, it's PAO2 is 80. Let's see how it goes. Like, no, this is a, a terrible sign. Also, remember your risk factors like patients that are pancreatitis, aspiration risks, having pneumonia, ARDS, X, Y, and Z. So know your patient population and don't be afraid to like interpret the ABGs can be intimidating. But man, once you learn how to interpret them and calculate these things, man, are you empowered to really advocate for your patient and detect this. So I would say for detection, yeah, like make sure you're looking at your ABG, make sure you're calculating your PDF ratio, make sure you know how much FiO2 your patient is getting. So on a BiPAP, it's easy. On a ventilator, it's easy. Well, what about a non-rebreather? How much FiO2 are you getting on a non-rebreather? 60 to 90%. What about four liters? What about two liters? What about one liter? Knowing those things and going above and beyond can really make a difference. And I will say, in terms of treating, do not let uh, your providers sleep on those patients. The earlier that we're proning, the better. The earlier we're advocating for ECMO, the better. If your facility doesn't do ECMO and it's feasible and they're stable enough to go somewhere that has ECMO, send them to somewhere that has ECMO. It doesn't behoove anyone to keep a patient there that can do better if they're potentially an ECMO candidate uh, to go to an ECMO center and, and get this. So a lot of times people have the temptation to say, well, let's make one change. Let's not make too many changes and see how it goes. Check an ABG in four hours. That's all fine and dandy. But once you have a PDF ratio less than 150, you have 48 hours before you go and you're proning somebody and it makes a difference in their life. Don't sleep on these patients. They're depending on you and they're relying on you to advocate for them. And you guys are, people listen to nurses, physicians, not all the time. But physicians do listen to their nurses, providers, nurse practitioners, PAs, listen to their nurses. Just make sure that you as the nurse are not sleeping on these patients because time is up the essence. Very good. 
All right, Christian, thank you so much for dropping so much knowledge about this case. I think it was really valuable in helping us remember how important it is to early recognize ARDS and get interventions early so we can actually turn these patients around. Yeah, man. Thank you so much, Christian. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. This is so much fun. Thanks for having me. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you liked this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.